Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I am joined by the fantastic Dr. Kate Goodyear. And I'm so happy to get Kate on because I would call her a friend as well as a guest. So thank you, Kate, for joining us. Kate has a background as a chartered psychologist and has a strong record in high performance settings. As a performance psychologist, Kate worked with Team GB Sports at seven Olympic Games and was pivotal to the historic medal hall of 2012 and 2016. In more recent times, Kate has been transferring the thinking around the psychology of performance to other areas and sectors, such as medicine and healthcare businesses and into the diversity and inclusion space. Now, I've really wanted Kate on with us for a while to help us get to our own best performance in work and life. Kate's an amazing thinker, and I know we will all get a lot from her today. And I know Kate is coming today from Sydney, where I am too. Kate, welcome to Better at Work. Thank you, Carl. It's a real delight to be here. And yes, I'm in Sydney. I am currently looking at a really rubbish view of the Opera House and Harbour Bridge. So yeah, life is tough, but I'm battling through. You are battling through. And it's a sunny day after a few days of a lot of rain. Yes, we brought the rain with us. So apologies, everybody (sighs) in Australia or in Sydney for that. We kick off every conversation on the show with where did this all start for you? How did you become so interested in human behavior or human performance? I love that you start with that question. And and in preparing for this, I was thinking, "Hmm, how do I share that? I think in truth, I am one of six children. I'm the youngest by eight minutes. So you kind of learn about team dynamics fairly early on. You're either going to get to play with people or you don't. And I had parents that were really interested in sport. My dad used to be a cricketer. So I think the performance thing has always been there and kind of dynamics and human interaction has been part of my early childhood. But I then fell in love with teaching. So before I was a psychologist in about 1842, I was a PE teacher and I taught for five years in high schools. And I kind of figure if you could work with teenagers, you could work with anybody. My curiosity in teaching was about helping to unlock individuals, but it was about how could I equip them with the skills to unlock themselves. And as I got more into psychology and did my further studies, master's, etc., PhD, I just continue to want to learn more. So it's a passion that has always been there and continues to be in there. And transitioning from sport into business, it's just a whole new world of brilliant performance questions and, and challenges. So that's what I love in the work I do. How much does our psyche affect our performance, do you believe? 
fundamentally. We can't go through a day where our mind doesn't have some kind of impact upon us. And I think we're living in an age where we can really practically see and demonstrate um, what's happening inside our brain and from the basis of neuroscience really begin to make sense of what's going on for us with moving away from it purely being a medical research field to one that's really practical and applied. So there's a, a famous quote by Tony Schwartz who runs a business called The Energy Project and we've done a lot of work with them. And he simply makes the quote that how we feel profoundly affects how we perform. So for me, in terms of our psyche, it's more than our psyche. It's also our biology. So our, we are wired in a way where our biology and our psychology is going to affect how you turn up in any situation, uh, how you read, react and respond. So fundamental to every interaction that we have and, and equally time that we spend with ourselves. I love that, how we feel. I mean, I think that's so critical or the energy you've got to give to something always so important. I think that certainly post-pandemic, we're hearing people talk about fatigue. And the fatigue part, I think, is in the uncertainty that we've been in. And certainly in Europe, there are lots of circumstances that continue to create uncertainty. And that's fatiguing for people. It's like mm -hmm. running a marathon and you're at mile 26 and you're hoping for the finish. And somebody goes, no, keep going, keep going. It's maybe mile 39 that I'm getting to. So because there's no way of compartmentalizing that finish line or how far we have to go, that in itself is fatiguing. But the way that we are working day to day and part of the reason why I really wanted to be on the podcast is that challenge around how do we make life better and work mm. is a big, big, big part of that. So paying attention, really paying attention to our energy, again, for me is fundamental because where we have deficits, where we're depleted, where we're fatigued, we just don't show up as our best, yet we seem to praise and reward longer hours and, and working in that way. But at some point, you're going to suffer because your mind and body is wired that way. I've heard you say before, the most, and this is back to your work in the sports space, athletes, the ones you have worked with have tended to be the ones where you have looked at the ones that are most successful are the ones that you looked at where you looked at the whole person and not just in sport. I really liked this. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I guess I, I would get you to think about the following, that when we meet athletes, we maybe have a perception of, of how they're going to show up in the session. And, and when you meet people for the first time in that context, one of the key questions is to find out what the goal is, what the dream is, where are we heading? And if you have two contrasting athletes, athlete number one says to you, well, I think I should go to an Olympics versus athlete number two who says, yeah, the Olympics gold medal. That's what we're heading for. We can see that those two individuals are showing up in really different ways. And one of the differentiators between them is not necessarily about the medal or the goal, but it's about the meaning. What does their sport mean to them? Meaning is a fundamental human need that we all have. And we're seeing at the moment increased focus on purpose in lots of businesses and in people's experience. And it is about having a sense of purpose and direction, but part of purpose for us is meaning. We want to feel like something significant to us. So I think we start that focus with athletes to really begin to define the measures of success. 
And I think it absolutely parallels into work. What are your measures of success? Because where we can set ourselves up for additional stress, anxiety, fragile confidence is when we're defining our success either by things that are beyond our control. So the uh, end results of something or the quarter financials, there are things that we can contribute towards and have a game plan to achieve, but they're not directly within our control. So we can set ourselves up that way. And also if we, and particularly have seen athletes really suffer with this, is when your identity, your worth is tied up into performance, when it's contingent upon that. And that often stems from earlier life experience where you learn if I'm successful, if I'm seen to be successful, if I'm seen to be a good boy or a good girl, and reward and love and recognition is contingent upon you producing outcomes. That's when we set ourselves up to really struggle because we are constantly in need of reassurance. We don't want to let people down. We become people pleasers. All of those characteristics, which I know some of your listeners have, have commented on and talked on, but it comes from that meaning. What does this mean to you? What does it serve in your life? And we spend increasing amount of time with performers understanding whole person versus just what do we intend to do on the track? Because without doing that, it will absolutely impact what happens on the, the track or in the boardroom or in your team meeting. I think oftentimes that kind of work only happens in the corporate space for an individual when they've hit a bit of a wall or burnout or something's happened where they go, okay, I've got to look and understand what's going wrong here. Why have I lost the meaning for this? I'm not as the purpose doesn't align anymore, but it's often at a tough moment where something's gone wrong. Whereas I think in what you've done with athletes is it's more early on absolutely part of our 101 to developing and working with athletes. But I, I, I love that you've unpacked that of the translation to business because that is what I find is you know, astonishing for me that I've come across people that want to be super high performing and you ask them, you know, what is this for? What is this in service of? Uh, yeah, don't, don't really know. And they don't necessarily have an answer on that. And, and some of the real breakthroughs I've experienced with business people where they've really then begun to fly is actually really looking critically at why why am I doing this? And it isn't necessarily purpose, which is about saving the planet, although that's becoming an increasing uh, message for people, the sustainability agenda being strong. Sometimes it's about being purposeful. So how I lead my team, what do I model? Those kind of things. So spending time doing this is not something that's a, a nice to have. It's an essential to have because it sets ourselves up to feel like we're more in control. We're a more emotionally stable by doing these things, for sure. What's the biggest barriers that prevent people from improving their own performance? You didn't tell me you were going to give me tricky questions. Um, <laughs> I think the reason it's difficult to answer isn't there isn't necessarily one key one. I think mm. common ones that I find, I'm going to go kind of left field with this because I think people might make assumptions. It's about confidence. It's about time. Mm. Uh, it's about resource to do that. It's about priorities, etc. The fundamental ones that I come across with individuals, and this is the left field part, is that some of this work involves risk. You know, what if it doesn't work? Or if I share this with other people, what are they going to think? It means that people might begin to label me because I can't hack it or I can't cope with this stuff. And I really love the work of Brené Brown. I think she's so 
courageous in herself to talk about shame. And the reason I really have been struck by shame, it's only 10, 15, nearly 20 years later of working with athletes that we assume some of the most paralyzing emotions for athletes are things like anxiety or anger, you know, aggression that happens as a, a consequence of an altercation on the pitch. But more I've found people are devastated because of shame. The shame part is how do I look in front of others? How are people judging me? Am I seen to be competent and capable? And I, I see that as being absolutely rife in the, the business world. So the perception of others is a critical barrier uh, to us. And, you know, my technical language is we kind of need to get over ourselves a little bit in terms of that one, because it's us making the choices for ourselves and for all of the right reasons. But when there's a basis of comparison or we feel like we might be publicly scrutinized, it definitely causes us to, to move away from it. I think other barriers can be actually, how do I do this stuff? You know, one of the features I find fascinating in in business is the proliferation of publications and work. And I think I'm going to plug you here, Carl, and, and Annette as well, but being able to access a podcast like this that says, go read this thing is really helpful because you go into an airport or a bookstore in the UK and there are so many books and there's so oh much written. How do you even begin to start? So I, I think that's a really important part. How do we make it easy for people to do? And, and what I mean by easy to do is if we have to think too much about something, our brain tends to find it really difficult to do. So what are the key things that we can begin to practice and do on a day-to-day -day basis and things that can complement some of the things that we're already doing in our day-to-day? -day? So I think that is just a really practical barrier that people don't necessarily know where or how to start. So engaging in podcasts like this, in communities like this really matters because how do you navigate a field where there's so much written in that territory. So I'd probably cite those couple of things around how we are seen by others. And then where do we even start? What, what are the things that we can begin to work on for ourselves when the field feels overwhelming? Because there's so much written in this space about how to be a better performer. You touched on something there, uh, which resonated with me is that there's a little bit about uh, self-awareness, it sounds like as well. We had the amazing Tasha Yurik on earlier in the season, and I can gather from what you're saying there, self-awareness is important as you think about what might be getting in the way of performance. I did listen to that podcast and I loved it. So extra plug, if you haven't listened to it yet, <laughs> go listen to it because it's great. What I really enjoyed about that, and I'm picking up on your point here, that that self-awareness is truly one of the most critical skills that we can hone and develop. And I loved how she separated out between self-awareness, which is me understanding who I am and, and what I need and what's important to me, my drivers, my passions, etc. And then the second part around awareness of how we're showing up for others. And that showing up for others, I, I really love to strip down to one question. And that one question is, what impact do I have on others? Because too often our brain is wired to, well, they're a pain, they're an idiot. You know, why should I value their opinion? And, and we don't chase down the feedback. You, you spoke recently about 360s and, and the opportunity to gain feedback. And that is so critical for us. But it's teaching people what to pay attention to, I think, is a challenge. And certainly Tasha's work gives you some clear direction on that. But the, the piece I would add to give people more, more thinking is in the awareness part, it's really paying attention to yourself and what you're feeling internally and making sense of that. 
and two frames that I would give, because you, you mentioned earlier Professor Steve Peters. I was really fortunate to be mentored by Steve for 10 years, and I met him just after my second Olympics. And the first Olympics I went to was in Athens. And I'll be honest, Carl, I'd never Scooby-Doo what I was doing in this environment, because <laughs> you suddenly go into this Olympic world, and you've got your kit, and you've got the team, and then you suddenly see people behaving in odd and strange ways because we hadn't done the right kind of prep for them. So 2004 was a huge education and the, and the team dynamic was really tough. 2008 was worse because the athlete I was working with meddled. And you come back and people go, so what did you do with this athlete? What's the magic recipe? And I realized I had just thrown a bunch of stuff at this person, hadn't asked any of the questions about meaning, their identity, their life, where this fitted. I didn't ask any of that stuff. So then I went to see Steve and have a really honest conversation about him mentoring me. I'd just come off the second Olympics. I'd just finished my PhD. I should have been sitting there really comfortable, but I definitely had kind of an imposter moment happening for me. And Steve effectively took my PhD, shredded it, <laughs> shredded all my practice because he got me to think about the world differently. So two key things that I would give people to think about here as a frame around the self-awareness part in terms of what's going on for you internally and what's impacting how you're showing up for others is the simple basis of two features of your brain. And these two features just kind of wreak havoc for us on the day-to-day. -day. The first feature, which again, some of your speakers have, have touched on, is that we are wired around survival. That's the principal job of the brain is survival. So consequently, we are looking for risks and opportunities on a day-to-day -day basis. In the world of work, it's absolutely rife in terms of moments that feel like life and death. They're not, but we're going into an appraisal. How's this going to go? Mm. We've got a hit margin. The quarter results are coming in. How's this looking? Uh, promotions. All of that causes us to go into the survival mode at times and our emotions lead the way. And then the second feature that we're really wired around is belonging. And so this helps support the survival drive within us. If we are not part of the tribe or the troop, if we're on the margin, we feel isolated, we feel alienated wreaks havoc with our biology. You're going to marinate in cortisol. It's going to affect what's happening internally, but it affects how you show up in the world. So from that awareness piece, I really want to encourage people to lean into some of that neuroscience to understand that your brain is going to do these things anyway. You don't have a choice. But when you've been triggered, you go into that survival mode. The consequence is sometimes our behaviors don't serve us and we don't serve up well for others. We continue to say yes on things because of the fear of consequence. And equally, mm -hmm. the belonging part, we talk about diversity and inclusion. And for lots of businesses, it's still tick box. None of that is real or helpful. Belonging is an essential if we don't have it, you will perform suboptimally. You simply do. So you want to feel connected because that's what makes us truly human. So alongside that podcast that Tasha did, which was brilliant, I just add on those couple of frames that your own biology, our makeup impacts our level of self-awareness and just use those couple of frames to think about situations you find yourself in when you've been triggered and how you might be showing up for other people. And where do you belong? Mm -hmm. Who's your pal at work? Who do you go yes. to to have a good moan, but also who do you go to to say, I really screwed up and I'm now quite scared. Could we talk about it? Who's that person?
the belonging one, as you were saying that I, I was thinking about other scenarios at work where sometimes if a company takes over another company, a smaller company, the smaller company often struggles to integrate. They don't feel a sense of belonging. A bit more broad than what you talked about there, of course, because, you know, and, and we talk about that a lot, that sense of having a friend at work, etc. But I think belonging can turn up in so many different ways in an organization. And we should lean into and be proactive in ourselves. Don't wait other, for others to invite you in. I'm not saying muscle in or push in, yeah. but be proactive in what gives you a sense of belonging. Know yourself, what creates that for you. Don't try and fit in because then you're going to burn a whole load of energy that's just unhelpful. Yeah. But where are the things you naturally connect? Meeting somebody, uh, you, we can say this now because we're back in the office, but making a cup of tea next to somebody. Who are they? What's, what's the job that you do? Just making those small inroads to connect to people, but so, so critical. And we're mm. living in a world where we have these fantastic virtual connections and internet mm. and social media, etc. But so many people report feeling more isolated and alienated than ever, enabling people to feel part of that. And equally, if you are somebody that's been in a business a good amount of time, reach out to those others. If you yes. want a healthy culture, some of that sits with you. Conversations are very important in organizations. I've made a career out of conversations, listening to people. I think you can pick up the sense and culture of a company from the kind of conversations that happen in meetings, the kind of conversations people have with each other, whether people listen to each other or they just talk over each other. You know, to me, conversations so, so important. Honestly, I have gone in and just asked people questions like, tell me what's happening. I think conversations, sense of belonging, so important in organizations. I'm kind of curious to ask you a question. I recently came across a business that were talking about a, a, you know, a generational gap. So these are, are mm. young graduates that are coming into the, the business. And what this business was observing was client experiences with these young younger graduates. It wasn't great because they didn't know how to start conversations, mm. manage conversations, articulate themselves clearly. And this company was talking about, do you know what we're going to do? We're actually going to skip a generation and we're going to include AI in this particular part of the chain. And we're going to rely on some technologies these young people can't do it. So I, I guess I was just wondering what your experience has been around, do, are we seeing a generational shift in the art of conversation? You know, is technology limiting that or is it enabling that? Um, I'm an old dinosaur, so I'm not sure, mm. but I wanted to ask that question. I've definitely seen that younger people and particularly post-COVID, I think they definitely can struggle with it because they're so reliant on, you know, chat and that side of things. But I've also found that they crave a conversation as well and being listened to. And certainly, I think the people that have been around a bit longer, giving some advice to younger people, they want it. They, they do want to hear it. Not everyone, of course. And so I don't know if I'd agree with the whole AI piece there with that. I think in my experience, if you set up the environment correctly, allow people the opportunity to speak with others they'll do it, but you've got to create a safe environment for them. I often think younger people in organizations are, there are certain proportion that are very confident and they're going to put out their views there and others are going to wait. And I think for me, my personality has probably always made it easier to get people to open up, if that makes sense, Kate, because I'm friendly 
right? They don't feel threatened by me, right? And I try to teach others that, you know, like I try to teach leaders that try and make it less formal. Like I was talking to someone recently, they were talking about their organization and some of the structures in place. It was so formal. And I I just was like, oh my God, if I was a younger person here, I would really struggle. This is like 1970s. So I think there's ways to, I don't know if I've answered your question there, but I think there's ways to do it. I want to just surface something that I think is really important for people that might be listening that are younger and equally people that are managing younger people in teams. Mm. I'm often asked to talk with a, a graduate or you know people that are in their, their first jobs or the young younger cohort within a business. And the key area where I find their questions come from, so I might have gone in to talk about imposter syndrome or confidence or presence or any of those things. And what they really want to talk about is actually relationships. And they say, how do I navigate this? So how do I navigate the relationships up? How do I navigate the relationships along? And how do I navigate the relationships down? And And I think although we recognize the value of relationships and you craft them and you develop them over time, when you first come into these businesses, it's a real minefield for younger individuals to navigate those relationships and to understand what permissions do I have? Can I go and talk to this person or not? And I think it's incumbent upon older members uh, within organizations to reach in to those younger people to invite that because it's a difficult skill set which we all had. But sometimes we forget that we had to do that work ourselves in terms of building that relationship and finding the skills to be able to have those conversations. But it, it's so important to that sense of belonging to people that I agree have. with you, Kate. It's a topic that I talk a lot about because I think the younger generation as well, because of COVID, they were working from home and they don't actually pick up through osmosis how things sometimes work, right? You know, when I worked in my first job in an investment bank, I would hear Sarah Copeland. Hi, Sarah Copeland. I'd hear her on the phone and how she interacted with more senior people. I could tell she was like, okay, I could tell she was on the phone to a more senior person because it was very like to the point. Boom, boom, boom. And I would go, wow, that's a different style of communication to when she's talking to one of her peers. And I think if younger people are not in that environment and they don't pick that up, it's not great. But also to your point, us who have a little bit more experience, we should share that with those people who haven't learned it yet. And the relationships bit is so difficult. I don't even think you have to be a young person to struggle with relationships. You know, I've had people that work for me that are in their 50s and they weren't able to get certain projects over the line because they didn't know how to manage relationships. We used to say, who's got the D? Who's got the decision rights in this meeting? Because you know, at the end of the day, if you don't know who has the decision rights or if it's a collective, who are the key ones we need to influence? It's an art in a way. I have a different D uh, to that one. I like your one because uh, I could work with that more. But the, the D I have is dysfunction. There are so many environments that the way we set people to work creates dysfunction because we don't share and the the silo working. But as soon as we start to put a couple of individuals together and as soon as you start to form teams, those environments create and manifest dysfunction almost instantly. We don't necessarily play nicely and 
I wrestle with the environment I'm in now. People talk a lot about high performance and, and we want to be a high performing team. And for me, high performance is the outcome. The bit that you're looking at before is, you know, what are the process elements that create that best performance? But I've worked with some hugely successful Olympic teams that are the most dysfunctional units you are ever going to find. I went to two Olympics and I was the insurance policy because these athletes were going to find it difficult to work with one another. So I think that relationship part that you've talked to and, and where you push back with the right challenge of it's not just a younger generation, it's at every stage of the chain. Yeah. If, if there was a, a skill set alongside self-awareness that I'd suggest people really dial up, it's that relationship management, which can include simply taking the time. It can include intentional moments to check in with people. How are you? And then going how are you really? You know, we did that a lot during the pandemic yes. and then we've stopped doing that so much. So I think that the craft around relationships uh, is to normalize for everybody. No one gets out of bed in the morning, goes great, difficult conversation day. Yes. Yippee. We don't generally do that. People, majority of us or a large number of us, I should say, have something that happens at work on a Friday and it's still with us come the Monday because we're playing oh, out yes. what potentially happens. So I just, I really want to draw on that skill area around managing relationships and there is no silver bullet, but no. it is about putting the work in. Now we talk a lot about feedback. It seems that your experiences, it's easier to give feedback in sport versus business because the athlete is wanting to do everything to improve. You have said that organizations need to embrace feedback a little bit more. What are your current thoughts on that? Do you still agree with that? Yes, 100%. I think, again, it's where the translation of sport to business, that in the sport world, athletes chase feedback. They're hungry for it. You know, one of the first challenging Olympians I worked with was a silver medalist sat there and she just said, I'm a silver medalist. What the heck are you going to do for me ahead of the next Olympics? And it was like, uh, okay, don't necessarily know yet at this point. But really what she was- I would have been was, like, gone, I'm going to leave now. So that's was, what I'm going to do. It was, I was not expecting it at all. So I wasn't prepared for that. But really what she was setting down is that she was truly invested in her performance and wanted to get better. And that's probably the part I would give people around the feedback piece that when we talk about performance and performance cultures what what is a performance culture and i i read this recently um and i would love to say it's my own but it's uh, dr keris evans who was the psychiatrist working with the all blacks he simply described performance cultures are ones where people are deeply serious about getting better than they are today if that's what the culture is truly about, that can only come from feedback. If you're not getting feedback, it's dead simple. You're not learning, you're not evolving, and you're not growing. If you think that I don't need feedback, go back to the self-awareness bit. You are abundantly not very self-aware. And it's not about reassurance and a needy type of feedback, but it's about being able to ask those you know, direct questions for people. In what I just covered, I think I might have missed the mark on a couple of things. Give me two points that I could be better on next time. In terms of conversations that went south, ask the person directly. As a consequence of that conversation, I could see that I triggered you. What was the part that was triggering for you? So the feedback, you have systems like 360s, which I think can be really valuable. But if, particularly if you're a leader, you should be regularly getting that feedback. When I come across yes. executives and they haven't had feedback for four years, I'm like, wow, 
that that's not a, oh that's not God. a good performance environment. It's a I've performance environment. That. But I've I've come across a number of people like that. So the the feedback bit for me is an essential, and it can be quick pieces. It doesn't have to be a detail. But if you're not doing that, you will be standing still from a performance perspective. Is is my belief. You said something recently that resonated with me. Being better at work, home or in performance comes down to choices. Yeah. I love the concept of choices because it simply does one thing that lots of us don't really like and can be super avoidant, have wonderful excuses that we think are reasons but are excuses. And that's accountability. And it's really important that we are accountable for ourselves. And that is not in a lethal, self-critical way, but recognizing that we have choices and with each choice there's consequence to it. And you're the person making that choice. It doesn't mean that there are circumstances where you feel you've got limited choices or choices are really tough, but choices are also incredibly empowering for us because they give us options and alternatives and different spaces to move into. So one of the skills we would work on from the self-awareness piece, if we go back to that theme, is to really recognize the choices we are making here and accepting our role in that. And if we say this is the best choice I can make and I'm going to go with it, then cool. But what we can't do is go into the victim mode. I had no choices. You forced me. You made me feel that that way. None of those things are true because your neurobiology and circuitry is down to you. And I think one of the best books on choices by a country mile is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl as a Holocaust survivor and a psychologist in that setting, he just highlights that you know one of the fundamental things for us is that choice in the most severe of circumstances. There are still options there. And it's actually through those intentional choices we can find betterment and improvement and, and ways through difficult times. So find the choices. I love that. There's so much in that. I sum it up like this. Everyone has the power to take back control because you have the choice. So I, I think that's just great. Thank you for sharing that, Kate, with us. Final few questions. We're all about being better at work. What do you think is the smallest change our listeners could do to have an impact and a better day at work tomorrow? Manage their energy. That would be 101, which might sound incredibly basic, but if we are not taking care of our own battery, everything else gets compromised. We think less clearly, it's harder to make decisions, we become more distressed, etc. So I think we're in a world where we say we don't have time to manage our energy. I think that's an excuse rather than a reason. The one simple advice piece I would give them is that the energy is about where you spend energy, but how you recover energy. So if I focus on the recovery bit and give you one piece of advice, it would be that as you go into your days, just spend time doing one thing and then do the opposite of that. So for example, if you've been sat on calls, go stand up. If you've been inside all morning, go outside for a walk. If you haven't fueled yet, get some food in. So making those intentional choices around energy, that's your responsibility because it will affect how you perform and will affect how you show up for others. And the long-term health impact is not worth that. So that, again, would be an accountability piece I'd give for people. Can you share with our listeners something you've learned or experienced at work that has unexpectedly made your whole life better? I think in truth, it would have been working with Steve Peters 
because Steve's ability to distill the complexity into, of the mind into a really practical model and book was game-changing for me in terms of giving me the insight to manage myself, be more aware, more skilled in doing that. And that has made me a better friend, daughter, wife. I use it with my children. They are preteens and it's challenging, but using that level of insight as a consequence of understanding how I worked was massive. So I feel truly blessed by being able to have had the opportunity to work with it practically, but it definitely has changed my life. And I simply worry less about the things I used to worry and have a much sharper sense of purpose and meaning in my life. Now, we finish every interview with the following question. Can you recall the best advice you've ever received that's made you better at work? I'm caught between two, but I'll try and stick with one. I think simply be kinder to yourself, which sounds a bit vague and a bit naff, but it's it's not because it's genuinely too often we go into that self-critical mode and it serves no one. Sometimes there is criticism we give ourselves and it's things to learn from and do differently next time. But I think we spend too much time not caring for ourselves and that really makes us depleted in how we turn up for other people. So just a couple of people holding me to account on being overly critical of myself and actually not engaging enough in self-care and that goes back to the energy point. So that's probably the piece I would give. I think we can be more compassionate to ourselves. Lovely advice to finish on. Thank you so much, Kate, for My coming on the show. Absolute it's pleasure, Carl. Really enjoyed. I mean, I've loved the chat and, and thank you for asking me some questions as well throughout. You put me on the spot there. I'm not used to that. It's cool. Liked it. I thought I'd be a bit <laughs> risky. Um, but yeah, I could have talked for ages. So thank you so much for the opportunity and really thank enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And of course, if people want more information on Kate, they can go to LinkedIn. Yep. And can they sure. follow you there or give uh, you they, a connection? They can. Yep. By all means, get in touch. I'm really happy to answer questions and, and yeah, just to hear people's perspectives. I am a continual learning performance geek and very proud of that fact. So go check her out on LinkedIn. And is there anything else, anywhere else that you like to connect with people, Kate? No, that's the main tool, Cahill. Yeah. I'd encourage them to Brilliant. start there. Yeah. Great. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Enjoy your time in Sydney. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Kate. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Hello, Annette. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline, our first one with me in London and you in Australia. Hi, Kahal. So good to be here. Still bouncing back from you, moving back to the other side of the world. But we've done this before. We've done five months remote last year, so we can do it again. What did you think of the amazing Kate, who I interviewed when I was still in Sydney, a lovely, smart guest and also a lovely friend of mine? What did you think? I really enjoyed the conversation, Kahal. I've learned a lot. As you've seen, I've got about five pages of notes from the conversation. She ain't lying. I've seen the five pages. Yes. <laughs> I find it really interesting to take all of those learnings and experience from sports around 
human performance and translate into what's happening at work, how we spend our days and how we are on the sports field in competition. So many similarities to how we are at work because we're humans and it's human behaviours, Kahal. Yes, so easy to talk to as well. I loved what she shared and I know you've got three great takeaways. What was your first takeaway from Kate and it? The first takeaway, Kaha, was building our awareness and knowledge of the psychology and the biology of performance. I love that tagline from Kate, the psychology and the biology of performance. I think what really brought that to life for me from Kate was where she talked about the two features of the brain. So what's happening there around the psychology and the biology Humans are firstly, number one, wired around survival and our innate stimuli of risks and opportunities. So that's the first one. Then the second one around belonging and how we marinate in cortisol if we don't feel like we belong. Your brain is going to do these things anyway. You can't stop your brain from doing these things under pressure or when we feel uncomfortable, challenged, etc. So that was number one, getting that insight and building out that awareness of what's happening. And we've covered this before yes. as well, Kahal, about what's going on with the amygdala and the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Doing the reading there for our listeners, there's so much to learn from that. That immediately then moved into my second insight, which is around Kahal, what to do when you start building up that awareness of when you're moving into flight, fright, fight, and the, the amygdala hijack and those two things happening in your brain. Get your list of questions ready that you can ask yourself. And I think we're maybe going to put a suggested list of questions into one of our upcoming newsletters as one really practical thing we can do when you notice those physiological triggers of blood pressure, anger, fear, nervousness, any redness, any shaking, etc. that's happening. Go to your list of questions. The one that I loved and I thought was really powerful, and I'm going to be using this from today onwards, what is really at stake here? And that leads to can lead to a whole pile of insights around what our fears are. And the fears are often around in that situation, how people are going to perceive me, yes. how people might begin to label me. And if when we can move out of that into confidence and believing in ourselves, how that can be really transformative. And if I could, Kahal, before I go to my third takeaway, could you recap on the description of Kate that someone shared with you about what Kate does. Yes, Annette, I loved what someone told me Kate's superpower is. They said to me, Kate unlocks people so they can move past the things that constrain them. How amazing is that? And Kahal, if you don't have or can't have a Kate in your life, having your list of Kate questions and working on those practicing test and learn, that's how you can help yourself, I think, unlock and move past the things that constrain you. So that was my number two, Kahal. And my third one is this is a theme coming through in many of our episodes as we seek to understand and build out the ways that we can all be better at work, feedback, 
as a leader, and that doesn't mean as a leader in a hierarchy, but as a leader of people, a leader of peers, a leader of colleagues, we need feedback. We need feedback. And one of the most powerful things from that feedback where you are leading is understanding where am I having an impact? What is the impact I'm having on others? One of the questions that I think is really powerful from Kate there that we can ask in many or any situation, the phrasing here, ask, I might have missed the mark. Would you be able to give me one or two points where I could have been better or done better? Really empowering, really easy to ask. There's humility in that question and the way it's phrased. I've written that down and I'm going to be using that, Kahal. Fantastic. Three takeaways there, Annette. I did love that question as well. And she raised a few questions that I think we might have to summarize in our newsletter because I just think those questions are fabulous. I actually agreed with your takeaways. I, I loved the conversation that she and I had about relationships as well and how important relationships are. I thought that was a really great conversation. I love that she turned the tables on me and asked me some questions as well about younger people coming into the world workplace. So she put me on the spot a little bit there a few times. But, you know, I think the other thing about Kate is that she has a lovely approach. Even I, I did the interview and I re-listened to it today and I was like, oh, this feels so lovely. It's a lovely conversation, really relaxed. Kate's a fabulous interpreter of the science behind performance and just makes it so simple. But I think there's a huge skill there to be able to simplify like that, Annette, and make it real for us. I was so pleased, happy and proud to hear that Kate is a regular listener. And I think that's because of that alignment around what can we do today or what can we learn to make some small changes to be better at what we're doing in our daily lives, whether that's sports or whether that's working with people, helping people be their best at work. Exactly. And you know what's great as well is Kate knows that it's not all plain sailing. And that's what I think is fabulous because I think that's what you and I always try to say on this podcast, Annette. We don't prescribe a list of things and go, if you do these things, you're going to be better and happier at work. That's not reality, <laughs> you know, mm. because the amygdala is going to get attacked or something's going to happen. For the listeners, we've been talking recently that we're almost a bit like you come to see us when something has flared up. Maybe that's not the right word to use, flared up. <laughs> okay. Okay. But you know what I mean, Annette. I do. And I think that's what Kate is very clear that like it's not always plain sailing and different things are going to happen. Life's going to happen. Things are going to go wrong. A big insight for me in the conversation with Kate is that remembering we're not defined by what we do at work. Great point, Ned. And we're going to have bad days. There's going to be conflict. Having your tools where you can go to, having done your learning, having your lists and your go-to places when you do have a bad day, a bad meeting, a bad conversation, and you know you're not feeling right. You've got your go-to tools and references to help you maintain that sense of confidence and not being defined by what's happened. Yes, humility and learning, but also being able to pick yourself up and move on, but also being able to help others do that when you see that, you know, that's 
a big thing for us is around skills and tools to help others, help each other, people around us. Thank you, Annette, for those three great takeaways. And thank you, Kate. We absolutely loved having you on the show. It's been a long time coming. Thank you, Kate. Thank and, you. And uh, we might have to get her back again, Annette. She was great. Oh, yes, absolutely. She was so, so good. Thank you, Annette. Thanks, Kahal. It's time for our listeners question. And Annette, this week, I've got the question and it's from Natasha. Natasha writes, Dear Carl and Annette, I joined a great company six months ago. A few weeks ago, I was made aware of an error I had made on all of my work over the past six months. This incident has resulted in the error being reported to the regulator. The error was based on the training I was given and even my trainer made the exact same error. Since this happened, I have been made to feel like a failure and I have been publicly shamed on numerous occasions. I feel so low right now. I would love your advice. And that is from Natasha. I mean, that puts the hairs on the back of your head, doesn't it, Annette? I can just see this situation. You and I have worked in banks when some errors happen and they report the regulator. You're like, you're on eggshells for two weeks. First of all, poor Natasha, this is an awful situation. I'm sure the same happens in other organizations, but in financial services, this is a bad one because it's been reported to the regulator. But poor Natasha is in this eye of this storm. Annette, what do you say? Natasha, my first thoughts are, please go easy on yourself. Think about forgiving yourself and what you can do there. And my definition, Kahal, is forgiveness is accepting that things that have happened couldn't be any different. This has happened, Natasha. The mistakes happen. You've been working in a process and there's also something here around there's potentially a flaw in that process that you've been working in. If mistakes can happen that are serious, that haven't been picked up earlier. So there's something there around that broader context. How can it just be one person? So there's something there to think about that there will be other contributing factors here. It's most likely not just you. And I, I know, Kahal, you always talk about exception-based processes and yeah. ways to pick up errors. So I also also think, Natasha, this really links well to Kate's advice to us today about self-definition. You are not your performance in one specific area, that protection of self. So there's something there, Natasha, about taking care of yourself and that who you are work on your meaning and your purpose as ways to pick yourself up and maybe some of the questions that Natasha, that Kate recommends might help also. The third one that I wanted to mention was around one of our most recent episodes with uh, Joe Hirsch around how to respond to feedback. And I think this model might apply or could help you here, Natasha. And Joe recommends a four phased approach when you receive feedback around something that has gone wrong. So that is firstly being being courteous, then being curious to really understand and also thank. The next one is around contrition, around acceptance of your role and your 
owning up around what you have contributed there. And then the next one is being constructive, which is how can you help? What insights can you share about how this can be avoided in future? So those are my three insights there, Kahal. But I also want to say for Natasha, she mentioned being shamed publicly. Yes. And that's not good. That's and if not this good. moves into bullying, Natasha, please think about getting some support from if you're in a large company from employee assistance to help you hear. If you being really realistic around the situation, if you've had conversations with your leader, what are the likelihood about being able to move on from this in this company? And if you form a view that actually the situation, you can't turn it around, there isn't going to be resolution, forgiveness, learning and moving on, it might actually then be time for you if you can to think about is it good and is it healthy for you to stay here if you don't believe realistically that things are going to turn around and that you'll be able to move on, learn and put this mistake behind you. Great advice there, Annette. I actually think very similar to you on this one. I feel terrible that poor Natasha ended by saying, I feel so low right now. That's awful. She's probably awake half the night thinking, what the hell have I got to face into tomorrow? And Natasha, just make sure that you have someone to talk to about this. Obviously, you've got us here to talk to, but even if you want to call us or send us a message, we're happy to have a chat with you as well, because that is just an awful situation to be in. And you probably, if you have a partner or someone, make sure that you're talking to them. The other thing I would say here, Annette, I totally picked up on the shame point of view. Be publicly shamed like this is awful. In this day and age, what is going through the managers or the people there who think that this is the right thing to do to publicly shame someone for an error? How do they expect anyone else to ever put up their hand when they've made a mistake if this is the kind of behavior? What you want in your culture is that people feel comfortable to call out errors. This is when I read this, I thought, oh my God, if this had happened in one of my teams, of course, if there's something happens in your team where you have to report to the regulator, I don't care who you are, you're going to be upset about it. I mean, I would be upset in it, you know, if I was the manager of this area. But to publicly shame someone is awful. Like you just cannot do that. So Natasha, you need to maybe realize that these people that are doing this, this is not normal. This is not the kind of behavior that I would expect in 2023. This is really, really not on. I think, as Annette said, in terms of taking, you know, the four C's, you've made a mistake. Yes, the trainer may have trained you wrong, etc. But you acknowledge the mistake. And then I think the constructive bit is really good, Annette, what you said about there. Like, actually, if Natasha can go back to her manager and say, look, as you said, how can we move on from this? Here are some thoughts that I had. How could we look at this process so that this doesn't happen again? If you get shot down on that, Natasha, I think, as Annette said, you might have to go, maybe this isn't the place for me. Because you sometimes can tell, you can tell a lot about a culture when things go wrong. What are you thinking, it? Yes, it's yeah, how we react and respond under pressure. And I actually had that advice from my uncle years and years ago about be yourself, because when you are under pressure, you will be yourself. So under pressure, if you're seeing these things that are moving into bullying, then that says something about what's the real culture is and the, the nature of the team you're with, how that culture, how that team is behaving under pressure. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, we don't know 
is this is this a, a, a systemic issue? You know, has have there been multiple cases like this, and this is kind of the final straw, and someone's getting really into a lot of trouble for this, and and poor Natasha is caught in the crossfire here. But Natasha, look, we hope that that gives you some advice. Please don't be too hard on yourself. Please reach out to people. Please know that this is just a phase. It will pass. This too shall pass. In a year's time, in um, two months' time, probably it'll have blown over. You'll either be still in the same job or you'll go, I'm out of here. Just look after yourself. That's the most important thing. And I think for organizations, you know, this is a really, this is something that happens more often than you might think. Annette, I have heard we've had a lot of cases like this where we haven't told the story on here or the the question on here, but we've heard a lot of people being nervous wrecks because something's gone wrong. Kaha linked to that one piece of advice that you gave me years ago oh, that I that I use a lot and, and is will this matter in five years time, Natasha? Yes, exactly. Will this matter? Will it really matter in five years time? Yeah. And that can help you with that. And I know it's a cliche in some ways. It'll help put it all in perspective. Having that perspective can possibly set you free here. I will quote someone else that I worked with, Denise Wiley, and she was a very senior lady at, at Goldman Sachs. And when incidents or anything, if something happened and people would be panicking, she would say, as a result of this incident, how many people have died? And we'd say no one. And she'd go, okay, we've got a situation. We don't, we're not dealing in life or death here. And I think for Natasha needs a boss like that right now. <laughs> Natasha needs to someone to say that no one has died here. Yes, it's been reported to the regulator. Yes, there was an incident. There was an error. But let's try to move on from it. The error has been found and the right thing is being done. Correct. And now it's the next right thing is to learn, fix, move on, heal. Exactly. And support each other through this tough part. If this was a great organization, they would take this as a lesson and they would actually say, you know what, we could have handled it better. We saw that maybe someone like Natasha got very stressed and was was not treated in the right way here. That would be a great organization, wouldn't it, Annette, that would actually use it as a case study and, and say what we could learn here? Yes. And Kahal, where you and I have both worked, I've seen seen that happen really well of taking these yes. examples and using them as a as something to learn from for the wider organization. It's a really, really healthy, productive, progressive way of learning from mistakes because mistakes happen and complex organizations, mistakes will happen. Natasha, look after yourself, stay in touch with us. And Annette and I are more than happy to help in any way and off the podcast as well. Just drop us a note if there's anything else. We'd love to make sure that you get back on the road as soon as possible to normality and not have this hanging over you. Thank you so much, Annette, for that. Thanks, Kahal. Lovely to see your face. Oh, lovely to see you too. And also, Kahal, thanks very much to our listeners as well for the questions and the feedback. And also, Kahal, our listeners can also look out for our newsletter. And if you haven't subscribed, take yes. a look at our website, Kahal, around where listeners can sign up for the better bits. 
Yeah, Nate, you know what? The newsletter, and we didn't script this, um, but uh, the newsletter is doing really, really well on LinkedIn. I think we're now nearly over a thousand subscribers, which is crazy. We cannot believe it. I mean, actually, if you combine, uh, we, you can, so listeners, you can sign up on LinkedIn or you can sign up through, uh, the website. If you combine the two, we've got about 1500 subscribers right now. And we are just so grateful for that. We can't believe it. And you seem to be liking the content we put out. So please do, if you haven't signed up, do sign up and also feel free to subscribe if you haven't to the podcast as well, right? You know, that means you'll get it right in the top of your feed every time we release a new episode. So. Do subscribe to both and get even more. And so we will be back very, very soon. We've got some great episodes coming up. I actually did a recording today, Annette, as you know, on confidence. So I've got a great episode coming up on confidence. And we've got some really great ones coming as well with some star guests. Can't believe it. More to come this season on Better at Work. Annette, I'll see you very soon. Talk to you soon, Cahal. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thanks, Annette. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.